0: All right. Good morning, church. I'm going to start talking because I got a whole lot to say today. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Rick George. I'm the administrative pastor here at Lighthouse. And a few times a year, uh, Pastor Doug allows me the opportunity to, to share with you guys and, and be a part of that. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I thought it was really cool how last week Doug started his message talking about how grateful he was for Sean, and it was their anniversary, and, and it was just a nice way to start the service. So I thought, you know, I'll do the same thing, so I'm grateful for my wife, Jenny. She's over there. If you don't know who she is, she's got the scooter. She's had foot surgery, so she's running over small children and pets, but today is actually our 18th anniversary, and uh, so we got to get here early so I could be prepared to talk to you guys, and, and then I'm usually exhausted, so I'll go and take a nap today, so it's going to be an exciting anniversary. But, uh, yeah, so if you notice her and she starts twitching, that's because she's been married to me for 18 years, and that's a side effect. So she's not great at making good life decisions. But anyway, uh, so happy anniversary. Uh, Today we are talking about the series Reading Between the Lines. And I hope you guys have been following along. I hope you've been as excited about this as I have been. Like, this is awesome stuff. As we're looking at how to read the Bible in context, okay? And Pastor Doug has said this, and I'm going to reiterate it. It's important to understand the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. You are not one of the churches that Paul wrote to, but that message can be applicable if you put it in context, and that's what we're trying to do. We are not up here so you can go, oh, great, Pastor Doug and Rick and Kyle, they're, they're doing the homework so when we get a message, we know it's in context and we know we know it's good. We're doing this so when you're at home, you know how to study and how to read scripture in context. If this half hour is all you're doing for your development as a disciple, you are not doing enough. Okay, that is important for you to understand. This is, this is a teaching so you can understand what context is. We actually have a resource available. It's called How to Read Your Bible for All It's Worth. This, is, this was actually, this was my copy I used in one of my seminary classes. It's really good, and it helps you start developing your way through how to read the Bible in context and correctly. So that actually, we have a couple left. Um, we had some last week. They're $19, they cost us like $18.70-some cents, so we took it to 19 He wouldn't even let me do 20 so we didn't have to make change because he said, we're not making money on these. If that's this resource you're interested in, we do have a couple copies left. Well, it looks like we have one copy left, so you guys can fight over it and race over there if that's what you want. It's a great resource to, to develop your, your abilities to read in context. We also have uh, the number one mistake most everyone makes when re- reading the Bible. This is the basis of what we've been speaking on in this series. It's written by a fellow named Brad Gray, ridiculously smart and talented, and gifted in communicating this content. You can get this. We have copies of it on the back tables, but you can also get it for free at Win. Or not waiting. Uh, Walking the text. Um, I turned off my timer. That means I just talk forever. Uh, at walkingthetext.com, you can sign up and get a free ebook. Okay, While you're there, check out the teaching series and the sermon series. I don't know what you're watching on Netflix and Hulu and on YouTube or, and whatever you're doing and whatever you're spending your time being entertained, but I'm telling you, it will be well worth your time if you eliminate an hour of one of those shows that probably aren't even all that funny and worthwhile and put in the teaching series or the sermon series by Brad Gray. It will help you develop as a disciple. It will not be a waste of time. It will be a great investment. And I encourage you to do that. But a lot of things we're saying you'll actually hear because we've learned from Brad. He's extremely good at what he's doing. And this is what God has called him to, and we cannot tell you enough of the value of these resources. So please, grab one of these if you need it. Sign up at walkingthetext.com. It's amazing stuff. You'll be better off for it, and it's great to go. And, and the real reason we're, we're looking at this series is because context is important, because when you're understanding it's not written to you, it's written for you, you have to understand who it was written to. And you have to understand that everything that's being done around the text matters. And until you start understanding their situation, their politics, their climate, their culture, their geography, their history, their slang, and start, until you start putting yourself into those unique situations, you can't fully understand what happened, and you will miss a lot of things in scripture. And I was thinking earlier this week that, that we are part of the Westland denomination, and that, that's along the lines of, of the Wesleyan Holiness or, or Wesleyan Arminian movement. And there's a lot of churches that fall in that line. There's the Nazarenes and the Free Methodist. And, and the, other, you know, the United Methodist Church kind of falls in that line. And you get some of the uh, Pentecostal churches are in that line. But then you also have this other line of the Reformed, which is your Luther and, and Calvin and Augustinian thoughts. And, and they go. And, and the interesting thing is we all preach from the same text. There may be someone in a different theology and doctrine base that's using this exact same Bible that I teach out of, but yet we can have some, some significant differences in some areas and some insignificant differences in some areas, but we're all speaking from the same text and believe we're all doing it well. Now, I'm not saying that Lighthouse has it right 100% of the time. I can tell you for a fact we do our very best to read in context and give it to you exactly as God is telling us to do it. But there's differences. And maybe those differences come because we start reading the Bible as if it's written to us and not for us. Because when you start reading it as if it's written to you, you start asking the question of, okay, what does the Bible say to me? Opposed to what was being said then and how does that apply to me? And there's a huge difference. Now, I'm not saying that God does not speak and has not spoke through a a simple reading of Scripture without context. Holy Spirit can move through that and speak to you and give you something called a personal revelation. And that can be a conviction and a movement where God is is pressing on your heart. and, And God can do that through so many different ways. And that is not an insignificant thing, and I'm never going to say that it is. That's important. But when you're talking of general revelation broad-scale communication, it's important to have context. And it's important to you to have context as you start sharing your faith with other people. And that is why we're spending so much time on reading between the lines and studying the contextual basis of the Bible. And a lot of it comes from something that was actually in Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book, and and again, Pastor Doug has used this the, the last few weeks, but I wanted to hit it again. It was a rabbi that told him, for us Jews, studying the Bible is more important than obeying it. Because if you don't understand it rightly, you will obey it wrongly and your obedience will become disobedience. We want, personally, for Lighthouse, for Kalamazoo, we want to understand the Bible rightly. So when we go out, we are speaking rightly And we are obeying it rightly. And people will see God by our actions, by the way we say things, by the way we do things. Context is important. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for context. We thank you for your love and for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for the way you speak to us, Lord. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you did write scripture for us. And that you speak to us through it. Lord, in this time, I just give it to you. I ask that you make my words disappear, and only yours stay. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today is an exciting day. Today we are talking about history and geography, and how they matter. And some of you may be going, yay! This is awesome. Like, I was super excited when, when Pastor Doug said, okay, Rick, you got, you got this weekend, you got history and geography. I was like, in one message, these, like, I could go for hours. Can I go for hours? Do you guys have plans? Like, can, can I just keep going? So there's a few of you going yes, and others are going, he doesn't speak for me. So anyway, we got two messages we're going to cram into one, and we're gonna talk about history and geography and why these matter so much. And we're going to take a look at uh, an example or two of of areas where this comes into play. And you'll see, okay, this does seem to come into effect. And and we can't possibly give you all the information you need to know in this short period of time. But we're just going to give you a little sampling, a little taste. So hopefully you see the value and the importance of what we're trying to communicate to you. Okay, so we're going to start with history. And history is a unique thing because there's history on a broad scale and there's history on small scales. Like, I have small-scale history in our family. My kids know history when I ask them a question. If I say to my son, Ricky, would you like to earn some money? He has a response based on history. Because about two years ago or so, there was a snow day and, and I was down in my office working, and I came up, and I looked at him. and He was sitting on the couch playing some video games. I said, hey, bud, do you want to make some money? And he said, no, I kind of just want to play some video games. And I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. It's a snow day. Relax. Have fun. And, and I went back down to my office, and I worked for a little while. And then, then I came upstairs, and I started putting on my car hearts, and I was going to go out and shovel the driveway. And then it hit me. I have a 10-year-old son. Why am I shoveling my driveway? And so I looked at him, and I said, hey, bud, I want you to turn this stuff off, and I want you to go shovel the driveway. And Ricky's a worker, and my kids, we we try to instill into them a good work ethic, and they all work at our job sites with us, and and they're good workers. And so he went out there, and he did good work, because they know I like the driveway shoveled all the way down to the pavement. And I like to see the concrete. And they'll get out, we got a big chisel, and they'll scrape all the ice off. And that includes like the mound of ice that builds from the snow plow. And he was out there for a couple hours, and he chiseled that all down. And I came out there, and I looked, and you could see the edges of the concrete, and it was cleaned off. The, the snow was pushed back. He did an amazing job. And I said, hey, bud, I'm real proud of you. And he said, oh, thanks, Dad. And I said, you remember this morning when I asked you if you wanted to make some money? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I was going to pay you to shovel the driveway. And he lit up. He's like, should I get paid to do this? And I said, no, you said you didn't want to. And so when I ask my kids, do you want to make some money? They've learned over history to say yes, otherwise they will end up doing it for free. So it's interesting how statements can, can draw you back to a moment, to a time of something else. Because if I say fourscore and seven years ago, you have now placed yourself in the Gettysburg Address. Some of you know it from heart, and you will finish it in your head, and you will think of the Civil War, and that one statement can mean so much. If you hear ask not what your country can do for you, you think of John Kennedy, and you can finish that statement and what was going on in that time. If you hear the dates December 7th, September 11th, You start to put into context everything that comes into those. Because it draws you back to history. And that is not new to us. That's been done throughout history. And we can see it in the scripture. If you hear this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It draws you back to a place. And you know exactly where in scripture we're going. It puts you in that moment. And see, this is not new to us. Like I said, this was was the same back in Jesus' time. And it was the same throughout Jewish culture that there was historical references made that would draw back. In fact, uh, young Jewish children would learn the first five books of the Old Testament. So when things were said or things were done, they would have a memorization of that text and they would know exactly what it was. There's things they did repetitively that Jesus would have done There's a story of a Jewish rabbi after World War II that was going around and trying to gather up the Jewish orphans so they could be raised in their faith and rebuild their culture after such a devastating thing. And and they found a lot of these children were in Catholic orphanages and they went to the priest and said, hey, we we really want to, to build back our families. And they said, that's great. If you can tell us which ones were Jewish children, you are happy to take them to your orphanages and, and rebuild your culture. And there was a problem, they're all from the same area, so they all, all looked alike, and it was, how do you tell the difference? Well, the rabbi could only think of doing one thing. So he walked into this room of children, and he started saying, Shema Israel. Adonai Elohim, Adonai Adhad. what he was saying was, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind, with all of your heart, and with all of your strength. That is something every Jewish person said multiple times a day. And as he started saying, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, student, children would stand up and finish what they were saying because those small statements drove them back to where they were. And this would have been the same back in Jesus time that culture has not changed so of course when you hear my god my god why have you forsaken me you go to the exact same place you go to psalms 22 right no you're going to the cross where Jesus said it but everyone around Jesus Let's go into Psalms 22, and we're going to throw that in the screen. This is, this is awesome. It actually starts, it's a, it's a lament of David, and it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't saying something new here. He was pulling back from history. He was saying, everyone around me, remember what David wrote. Because it says, why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you doubt, or you do not answer me. By night, I find no rest. That sounds a lot of like what went on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus crying out, being exhausted and stressed. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. Talking about history there. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. I am not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let him rescue or let the lord rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him this was going on as jesus's last days were going jesus was referencing when david was laying out the last few days of christ's life he wasn't saying something new do not be far from me trouble is near many bulls surround me strong bulls of bashan encircle me roaring lions with their Uh, With their prey open and their mouths wide against me, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. The process of being hung on a cross would knock bones out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dry. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust for death. Jesus was thirsty dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and glow over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Jesus was not saying something new. He was referring back to history. The book of Israel is the most quoted book in the New Testament. You cannot fully understand Jesus in the New Testament if you do not understand his Bible. Jesus studied and memorized as he went through the rabbinical process the Old Testament. Paul made references to the Old Testament. To understand what was going on, you have to understand the history of what was going on. You have to understand all the things that happened before. When you're talking about history and you're reading scripture, you have to stop for a moment and ask, has this happened before? Because when you see Jesus raise a young boy from the dead and you start going, has this happened before? You see Elijah raised a young man from the dead. Very similar situation. Time and time again, Jesus would perform miracles that mirrored miracles from the Old Testament. And he did that so people would start drawing in and make the connection and go, wait, something's happening here. He's doing things that our forefathers did, that the prophets of old did. He's saying things that were, were drawing out, statements made in the Old Testament, in the Bible that they all knew. History matters when reading the New Testament history matters when reading scripture we cannot put enough emphasis on knowing the history of what was going on it changes the way you read scripture now geography can even be more exciting I'm sure some of you are going sure it can Brad Gray in his book he actually says knowing where an event took place matters a great deal Without understanding the physical location, it's nearly impossible to understand why the event occurred in the first place. He actually goes on to say that he believes that 90% of the things that happened in the Bible were directly related to where they happened. So Jesus wasn't walking around, and the disciples weren't walking around going, okay, I gotta get to here on schedule so I can do this particular thing here, and then I gotta get over to here so I can do this particular thing over here. This was a telling of what was happening as they were traveling around doing the ministry of Jesus and the events that happened because of where they were. Where they happened matters. When I said you have to look and say, okay, did this happen before? You also then have to ask Where did it happen? Because when I said Jesus raised a young boy from the dead and Elijah did, it was in the same town. Geography matters. Because when something big happens like that, the story sticks for thousands of years. And when it happens in the exact same location, you start drawing the connections. Now there's multiple layers to geography that you need to look at. There's the location, the actual physical spot, the address of what happened. There's the topography. It's important to know what the ground looked like, what the mountains were, the hills, and, and how everything goes. Because it changes battles in the Old Testament. It changes attack routes. It changes walking paths. You have to understand the climate. Were they walking around in the very desert area of Jerusalem and Judea, or were they in the very green luscious area of galilee because it changes things the geology what rocks what plants what minerals were all there changes things because there's a couple different mustard seeds so when you start talking about this this farming culture where jesus makes mustard seed references you get to find out what the actual plant was and what it would have meant water access is a big thing no water you die So you'll often see the routes they take don't make sense because why don't you go from one point to the other? Well, maybe it's not accessible. Maybe there's not fresh water. Maybe the mountain's too high and will take too long. It's actually faster to go around it. All those things play a part. You have to look at the roads and the trade routes, and you have to look at the politics. Who was ruling in that time? How crazy were they? Were they a friend to the Jewish religion, or were they opposed to it? All of those things play into the context of what was happening in Scripture in those moments. So if you're looking at the Galilee, you'll notice there's going to be four different areas in the Galilee region. So four different spots that touch the Sea of Galilee, which is more like the pond of Galilee. It's surprisingly small. But it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's also freshwater. I don't know why they called it that, but they did. So you have Tiberias which is a Hellenistic area. That is where you're going to find most of your political base. One of Herod's sons set up his capital capital in Tiberias. Okay, so that was going to be your heavy political area around the Sea of Galilee. You have Gamal, which is also known as the camel, because it's on two mountains that kind of look like a camel's hump. That's where the zealots are. And you may go, who cares? The zealots are your religious extremists. They hate everyone, because no one's following the law right. Okay, but you can't discard them because a few of the disciples were zealots. And we're going to talk more about that in another day, and it's fascinating. I can't tell you enough how fascinating that is. But they're part of the play. Okay, then you have Capernaum and Bethsaida and Corazon. That's the religious triangle. That's where you're going to find the most of your Pharisees and your Sadducees and, and the religious elite. Okay, those are the ones that were giving Jesus the most hassle. And then you have the Decapolis. That was everything Greek and Roman that that would be opposed to what God has designed for. Happened in the Decapolis. That is where you would not find any Jews. It is the unclean of the unclean. That is like the forbidden zone that they wouldn't be. And this is a little map of the region. Okay? Okay. So you have Corazon, Capernaum, and Bethsaida right here. That's your religious triangle. Actually, the uh, uh, Gamal is going to be right in here. You can see the Decapolis right in here. So there's Nazareth. But then uh, you have Tiberius right there. And then there's the Sea of Galilee. And again, it's very small. Jordan River here. Jordan River here goes down to the Dead Sea down here. You have Judea and Jerusalem way over in this area. Okay, but this is very green, very lush area. There's lots of fresh water, and a lot of things happen in here. And it's important to know those areas when you're reading scripture, because it changes what's going on. Okay, this is actually a picture of Tiberias. So I was, uh, I stayed five nights. This was a view out of our hotel room. So this is all Tiberias. It's still a huge city in that area, but that was the the political power in there. Now, you also have to know the trade routes of what was going on. So this is a map of the trade routes. This is really interesting stuff. Why would Jesus do most of his ministry in Galilee opposed to Jerusalem? Okay? Okay. When you think of Galilee, and and when people are surprised, and they say, why, who is this man that speaks as a rabbi with authority, they were confused. If you're from the south, I'm about to say something offensive to you, and I'm sorry, but when you hear someone with a deep southern accent when you live in the north, you kind of think, who's this hillbilly, right? That was the Galilee. They had the deep southern accent, okay? they had the twang, kind of thought I was a little hillbilly. So why would Jesus not do the most of his ministry in Jerusalem? A lot has to do with this. This is the coastal highway. It goes from Egypt all the way through. Here's the Sea of Galilee. There's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem, Judea is over here. There's no super highway. There's just some good roads. This is the king's highway that connects. By doing your ministry here, when a miracle would happen, it can spread in every direction with 20 miles every single day. If it happens in Jerusalem, the information dies knowing which paths they would walk on, which ones are safe, which ones are stoned, which ones are under Roman control so you can go through and not be robbed and not be beaten. That all matters in context. It's important stuff to know. It changes the way stories are viewed. Now we're going to look at a couple pieces of Scripture in, in Mark, and we're going to start to look at some of those and go, okay, how does all this play in? The first we're going to look at is the feeding of 5,000. First piece of context you need to know, numbers matter, and you have to look at what the numbers mean. So in the feeding of 5,000, you have to remember that's 5,000 men. So by the time you add in your women and children, that number could be 8, 9, 10, 11,000 people. Okay? That happened in this area here. Somewhere along here, there's a remote location where they could handle that many people. They clumped people in groups of 50 and 100, which goes all the way back to Moses and how he would divide people up. There were 12 baskets left over, 12 tribes of Israel. That matters. So we can see that that this happened in a generally safe area where you would have found a large collection of Jewish people that would have been interested in the teaching of Jesus because he was a rabbi with authority. It makes sense. Now for me, a long time, I would get lost in the fact that there is also a feeding of 4,000. That is a completely separate event. So when you start going, has this happened before? Yep, it happened with 5,000. This is 4,000. When you add in the women and children, 7, 8, 9,000 people would have been fed. And you can read about that in Mark 8, 1 through 10. Okay? This took place right here. Completely different than here. This is the Decapolis. You should ask yourself, why were there 7, 8, 9, people wanting to hear what Jesus had to say? There's the number of baskets left over. Again, that's seven. Seven is an, a number of completion in the Bible. Nothing was done without intention. But why were there four? thousand men wanting to hear what jesus had to say in the most anti-jesus anti-jewish region all around the galilee so you have to go back to history you have to go back to geography and say did something happen here that makes this make sense and if we back up a chapter in mark we get the demonic man Now, if you're not familiar with this story, the brief rundown is the disciples and Jesus decided to say, let's go to the other side. So they were over on the west side, which had been Tiberius or Capernaum type area of the Galilee, and they said, let's go to the other side. Okay, them saying the other side meant the Decapolis. That is like us asking someone, where are you going on vacation? And they say up north. Well, you know, up north is to the bridge. And if they say UP, you know, you've crossed the bridge. Those statements are same. You know, we understand them because we're from Michigan. It makes sense. Up north, as you get to Indiana, Ohio, is a different statement. But in that time, the other side meant we're heading to the Decapolis. Okay, they hit some rough water and, and some things happened on their trip over, but they eventually get to the shore to the Decapolis. And if you read in that first section, it says Jesus got out of the boat. There were 12 disciples with him who did not get out of the boat. This is a rabbinical do-then-teach moment. I cannot blame them for getting out of the boat, because what do we know? The Decapolis is where Jews should not be. There is a crazy, demon-possessed man there who's breaking chains cannot be held down. I would stay in the boat. Okay? He's living in tombs. Tombs are unclean. No rabbi or disciple should be anywhere near this. Disciples stay in the boat. What's also right next to these tombs? Thousands of pigs. Unclean animal. Do not go near these animals. Unclean. Disciples stay in the boat. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the Jews. I came to save all creation. He gets out of the boat. He goes and starts talking with this man and says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion, because there are many of us. Now, Legion, no, he's licked. He's done. Can't stand against God. He says, you know what? Throw me into these pigs. Now, interesting thing, those pigs, they were a main source of income in the Decapolis. Nowhere else, because everywhere else is heavy Jewish population, Decapolis is not. They can have pigs. It's the main source of finances, Legion knows, you throw me into the pigs, I've now disrupted the entire financial system of this region, and they will hate you because of it. Also, there's a Roman legion of soldiers that manage the Decapolis. They're called the Legion X, okay? Their symbol is a wild boar. So in this, he's making a connection going, the thing that controls you is the thing that's going to disrupt all this. This is a very chaotic moment by this demon and these demons going, okay, yeah, go ahead and do this. Let's see what happens. Jesus throws them in. For some reason, these pigs don't float. Pigs normally float, but they go, they go down the cliff, into the water. They all drown. They all die. The people revolt because they know they just lost thousands of pigs and all of this income, and they kind of push Jesus back. He goes back to the boat where the disciples have been hanging out because they didn't want to get off the boat. And who goes with them? The formerly demon-possessed man. And Jesus says one simple thing. No. He says, you go back and you tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Everyone knew who this man was. The story of his possession and his strength was heard all throughout the Decapolis. The region was aware. And even though they pushed Jesus back into the boat, And he went back to the other areas, to Capernaum. One man was left behind. So when you start reading scripture in context, you begin to see the value that Jesus places on everyone. The fact that God came to save everyone. And that regardless of your situation and what happens, you matter to God. And you start to see the value of one redemptive story one person in the most pagan heathen land went and spread the word about what the Lord has done in redeeming his life and thousands people show up to be fed context matters the history the geography the culture, the language, the literary form it's written in, all gives us insight that completes the picture and we get a better idea of the fullness of who God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for, for examples of this where we can start putting the pieces together and we can see your amazing love for us. Lord, we bless you and we praise your name as a result. God, we just lift you up. Lord, if there's one person in this room who's feeling like their past is too great to feel your love, in your redemption. Let this be an example of how far you will go to redeem them and how much their story matters. We praise you, Lord, for this. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have the the How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth book. If you, if you want one, we can order more. You can get it on Amazon. There's some of the resources. We've, each week we put out different resources. Those are some of the things I use when I'm, when I'm doing my sermon prep and digging in. You can check them out. Maybe there's ones you want to order. Some are, are a little more simple and then others go into great depth. But context matters, everyone. And you can't just get it here. You got to dig in on your own. Get on Blue Letter Bible. Get on Walking the Text. Get on some of these resources.